If you've been with us, we started last week a new series called Making Our House a Home, which is a journey uh, through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, chapter two just happened to be a very long chapter. So thank you, Tim, for working through that. But before we continue our series and kind of look at chapter two and what's taking place as the story unfolds, I want to look back briefly at what happened in chapter one. In chapter one, we're introduced to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is living during the time where the Persian Empire has taken over most of the known world as a strong empire. And Nehemiah is a cupbearer. This takes place about five centuries before Christ. And so Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah's position as a cupbearer means that he's most likely the second most influential and powerful person in the entire empire. Because the cupbearer is essentially the right-hand man of the king. Nehemiah is a child of the exile, so he is a Jew. But Babylon is really his home. That's where he's rose in the ranks to his position. That's where his friends are. That's where, in many ways, his culture is. And he continues to use this word, the God of heaven. And, and the translation of that is actually a Persian term for God. So this is his culture, these are his people, he's enjoyed many luxuries because of his position as the cupbearer in Babylon. And he really has a life that most of us crave and desire, right? He's very successful professionally, he is influential in his culture, and as we saw last week, and we'll continue to see, he's deeply mature in his faith. So as he's living his life in Babylon, his brother comes to visit because for about 50 years now, some of the Jews that were in exile were sent back to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild their walls and rebuild the city and kind of get the community going back over there. And so his brother comes most likely to share about family matters and starts to talk with, with Nehemiah. And then Nehemiah says this, okay, that's great, but how's the city doing? How are the people? Surely by now, you know, the walls are rebuilt and the temple is back uh, to its glory and the community is being built up. And his brother says, listen, Jerusalem's in shambles. The walls are broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. I mean, it is vulnerable and weak. And we see in chapter one that this news not only saddens Nehemiah, but it, it burdens him. It, he really has a burden for God's people, though he really has no association with them, right? He's living in Babylon. That's his home, his culture, his community, his friends. And yet when he hears the news about God's people, it burdens him. And he goes before the Lord and he prays and he says, God, you are good and you are faithful despite the circumstances around. And then he joins himself with the people of God, though he doesn't know many of them. He joins himself to them in prayer and he says, I'm confessing on behalf of all of us because we are sinful people. We've rebelled against you and we should have expected this. Because you promised all the way back in Deuteronomy, thousands of years before, that if we turn from you and if we rebel, you're going to scatter us and place us into exile. That's exactly what happened. Then he ends his prayer like this. He says, God, I'm going to plead that you remember your promises, that you are faithful to rebuild and restore and reconcile us back together as your people. And then he closes his prayer and says, and when I go before this man, meaning the king, because he knows that he has something to do with this burden he's feeling for God's people. He says, will you give me favor and mercy when I go before the king? And so what we saw last week is that Nehemiah, it's evident that he has deep faith. He believes in God and he believes in God's word. But what you see in the life of Nehemiah is that his belief causes him to realize that he belongs to God's people. 
He doesn't only, his faith isn't only about he and God, but he realizes through his faith that he believes in God, but yet he belongs to God's people. And so when he hears the news about what's happening to God's people in the state of God's city, even though he has very little association with them, they have very little real life effect on him, it burdens him. And he's caught up in that. And and chapter 1 ends in the month of Shislev, it says, which is uh, between November and December. And then we pick up here in the month of Nisan when a lot of cars are sold, which is between March and April. And so about four months' time has passed from chapter 1 to chapter 2. So he ends his prayer. He hears about the state of Israel. He's burdened by what's happening to God's people. And now it's been four months to this moment where we pick up the story today. And it says that he was working this party, essentially. Persia was famous for their drinking parties. And as the cupbearer to the king, you have a pretty important role to make sure that the wine the king drinks is safe and that the party is going well. And so if for four months, the king has not noticed anything that Nehemiah has been feeling. He didn't notice the burden. It wasn't written all over his face, but Nehemiah could no longer keep it in. He's handling this party and the king notices something's wrong with him. Nehemiah is kind of melancholy. And there's nothing that can destroy a party worse than melancholy cupbearer. You know what I'm saying? You can't have a cupbearer that's moping around. And so the king calls him over and he says, Nehemiah, listen, what is going on? It says that, he says, I know you're not sick, but it looks like there's a sadness of the heart. He's saying, Nehemiah, bud, you can tell their relationship, right? They're, they're friends. There's, there's a relationship here that's not simply professional. And he says, Nehemiah, are, are you depressed? What's going on? And Nehemiah, you know, he knows this is the moment, right? He's been waiting four months for this moment that he prayed because he was going to ask the king if he can go to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And it says that he's very much afraid. Maybe he's afraid because his countenance has angered the king because he's been kind of moping around this party. Or, or maybe he's afraid because he knows what he's about to ask and he's not sure how the king's going to respond. Regardless, he says, okay, king, I want you to know this first. I want you and your kingdom to live forever. It's like, we'll just get that out of the way. I'm going to suck up a little bit to you before I ask this. I want the kingdom to live forever, but the city of my ancestors lies in ruins. And it is vulnerable and it is weak and and I want to go rebuild it. And there's that pause, right? There's that tension in the conversation. And it says that the king looks at Nehemiah and his first question is, well, how long are you going to be gone? He's concerned. How long is Nehemiah going to be gone? Because he's his cupbearer. There's a a professional relationship, but it seems like there is also a a friendship here. And he says, when are you going to leave and when are you going to return? And Nehemiah has been preparing for this. He's been waiting for four months. He's been preparing to answer these questions. And he's, he gives him an answer. He doesn't, doesn't tell us what his answer is, but he gives him an answer. He says, this is how long I'm going to be gone. He says, the king turns to the queen and looks back at Nehemiah and says, you can go. You can go to help to rebuild your city. And as he's processing this and as he's working through this, it's very clear that Nehemiah is not impulsive, right? It's been four months He's heard about the state of God's people. He's heard about what's happening in God's city. And probably everything in him wanted to say, okay, let's go. Let's gather up a group of people. I don't care what the king says. We're going to go and we're going to rebuild the walls and we're going to fix this because this is wrong. This is not okay. 
but he waits because he's humble. He realizes that what's taking place in God's city with God's people is not ultimately his burden. It's God's burden that has become his. That God has a burden for his people. And now after hearing the news of it, it's become his burden. And so he waits. But as he waits, notice how he waits. He waits actively. We see that he's continually praying throughout this process. He is praying the entire time until the moment arises where he's going to ask the king. And that's a marker of humility, right? Because what is prayer? It is acknowledgement that you are below God. It is surrender to God, saying, God, you are in control. I'm asking you for guidance. I'm bringing things to you because I know that you're the only one that's going to be able to fulfill these things. So one of the things that is true is that if prayer is not a constant in your life, then most likely humility is not a constant in your life either. Because prayer and humility go together. And so he's been praying for months and months and months, but he's also been preparing. He's been preparing what he's going to say to the king. He knows every scenario. He's planned for any question the king's going to ask. He's thought about what he needs in order to accomplish this work. Because he says, when the king asks him, how long are you going to be gone? He gives an answer. And then after the king finally tells him, okay, Nehemiah, you can go to Jerusalem. He says, king, a couple more things. Can you also write some letters for me so that on my travel from Babylon to Jerusalem, I'm going to pass through some kind of dangerous regions that aren't really a fan of my people. And they're going to want to stop me and hold me up from the vision that you've given me. And so, will you write me some letters so I can move through safely because I don't want to get stopped? And also, on my journey, when I get there, I recognize that I'm going to need wood. And so, will you write a letter to Asaph? You know Asaph. He's in charge of all the forests and all the wood and all the timber in the region. And I know in order to rebuild this city, I'm going to need a lot of wood. And it's expensive and it's hard to come by. And I've been preparing for this. And so, will you write me a letter so that Asaph knows to give me the wood? You see, throughout this process, he has been praying and he has been preparing for this moment as he's been patient. He's been patient and in a posture of prayer and preparing for every different scenario so he could accomplish the work that God has given him. You see, here's here's the thing that we see in Nehemiah, and I think it's true everywhere, that all great works start with a burden that gives birth to a vision. All great works Start with a burden that gives birth to a vision. Think about some of the great works in the history of the world, right? The printing press. There was a burden to create something that would enable literature to go to the masses. And from that burden was born a vision. And that vision created the printing press. Even if you think about the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell had a desire, he had a burden to improve teaching for for the deaf, And from that burden, he had a vision. So he thought, what if I I did something with hearing and and communication device? And as he began to work through that, he invented the telephone. Cavemen had a burden to no longer use their hands. That would be horrible. Use their hands to build and do all this stuff. So they made different kind of tools. There was a burden to improve farming. So there was actually time to go to sleep at night. I don't even know how to farm. But without a wheel, I certainly don't know how to farm. So they invented a wheel. Every great work starts with a burden, and it gives birth to a vision. And when I was in high school, guys, I had a burden. My senior year, I had a burden to pull off the greatest senior prank of all time. 
And that burden gave way to a vision. And it was a very elaborate vision. So I gathered a few buddies my senior year, first day, and you, know, you could sense it. When the burden is inside of you, it's like, it's all you can think about. And so I, I'm processing, and I'm, we're beginning to formulate a vision here of what we're going to do. And we recognize that we need to be patient, and we need to prepare. Because if, if we act too quickly, we may get caught, or worse, it may not be a good prank. And so we take our time and we figure out, okay, when are we going to do this prank? And we figure out the best time to do the prank is the day before senior day. Because they're going to expect it on senior day, but the day before? I don't know. So that's the day. And here was what I wanted to do. I wanted to get a cow. The reason I wanted to get a cow was because where I went to high school was on the second story of the entrance. And there were these steep, windy stairs to get up to the entrance. And I, I investigated because I prepared here. So when you open the double doors, there was a bar in the middle. Meaning, if I got a cow, the cow cannot fit through the door. And you can't take the cow down the stairs because they're too steep, and it's widely believed that if cows go down steep stairs, they break their legs. So here was my thought. I'm going to get a cow. We're going to wait till the guard goes on his shift, and we've got a little window of time. We're going to unload the cow, take him up the stairs, because they can go upstairs, leave him there, and then they're not going to be able to get him off. So we're going to show up in the morning. There's going to be a cow, and there's going to be like a fire truck trying to figure out how to airlift this cow off of the second story. It's going to be the greatest prank ever. But what we didn't think through is that cows are expensive. I don't know how expensive cows are. I've never been around a farm in my life. And so I went investigating how expensive cows are. We didn't have that kind of money. So I looked for a sick cow. But that didn't work either because they're still expensive and then, or they're too skinny and it doesn't work because they can get through the door. So we went to plan B. And plan B in the preparation period was we're going to turn the brand new swimming pool into iced tea. That was a great idea. So we're going to go to Costco. We got as much Crystal Aid iced tea as you can possibly imagine. And then we put it in our car with some lemons. We snuck onto the pool when the guard was on his shift, jumped in, poured in all the iced tea, stirred it with the leaf scoopers all around the pool, ran around, threw the lemons in. And then when everyone showed up the next morning, the pool was iced tea. And if Snapchat was a thing, it would have been Snap, guys. You know, it was awesome. And we really prepared for this. I mean, we were patient. We were planning this throughout the year. And it was successful. But here's the reality, right? All great works may be born out of a a burden that gives birth to a vision. But sometimes your vision can be misguided, right? Because your burden can be misdirected, right? And so vision not only requires preparation and patience, as you see with Nehemiah, but it requires prayer. Because if you don't have prayer as a center point in the vision that God has given you, that's born out of the burden that you have, then you're going to have vision drift, or you're going to become self-important, or you're going to begin to rely on yourself. You're going to think that you're really important to this work. But prayer puts you in your proper place. It puts you below God, asking him to be the one to accomplish this, asking him for guidance, keeping you aligned and focused on what he has for you. And so vision requires for the believer prayer and preparation and patience. Helen Keller has this quote. It's in the very beginning of your worship program where it says, the most pathetic person in the world is someone who has sight but no vision. Think about that. Helen Keller says the most pathetic person in the world is someone that has sight but no vision. Because sight is seeing what's in front of you. 
but vision sees what's beyond. Sight is content and satisfied with the current surroundings, but vision is noticing brokenness. It's noticing hurts and needs, and it's not content to not do anything about it. Sight walks forward without thinking. It looks like a clear path, so let's go. But vision is patient. It prepares before it takes steps. Sight only looks ahead, but vision looks up. Vision is surrendered to God in prayer before it takes steps as well. And so the question is, and I've been rattling this through my head this week, and I hope you can process this too. Are you a person of sight or vision? Are you just walking forward, content with what's around you, not thinking too much as you go, just taking one step at a time, not looking ahead, not surrendering to God in prayer, no patience, no preparation, or are you a person of vision? Are you looking beyond? Are you noticing brokenness and need around you and thinking of how you might come and bring aid to that and and preparing and being patient and coming before God in prayer as you process and you go forward. Because I think I would assume that Nehemiah was a person of vision in many different places in his life. He rose to a a place professionally that was incredible, the cupbearer of the king. And surely he had a vision for that. He was pursuing that. There was a burden in him to achieve and to work towards this end. But what's unique about Nehemiah is that the burdens that he feels that gives birth to vision in his life are not only concerned about him, right? He hears about what's happening in Jerusalem with God's people who he doesn't really know. They have no real life effect on him. But when he hears it, it becomes his burden. And he has a vision for how he might go help, how he might be a part of what God is doing there, though it doesn't really personally affect him. And so the the secondary question of whether or not you walk by sight or whether you walk with vision is probably a more difficult question, and that's this. Do you have a vision for God's people and for God's church, his city? Or are all the different visions that you have only concerned about things that affect you? Or are you concerned about the things that affect God's people as well? Because here's the deal. Scripture is very clear. It says that Jesus loved the church and he died for the church. He proved his love by dying for the church. And then we see God's vision for the church, right? He has prepared it and we are patiently waiting for it to come true. Which is seen in Revelation where God gives us the picture where his church will be united with Christ. Or we will be one, we will come together and all things it says will be made new. All the brokenness and all the tears and all the shame and all the pain and all the things that we suffer of the effects of sin in this life will be done away with because Christ and his church will be united. And the question is, okay, if that's true of God's church and the vision that God has that he is carrying forward, because it's, it's a burden that God has for his people and for his church, then what about now? What about us, and, and how do we live this out? And I think what's clear in the life of Nehemiah is the same thing should be clear in us, is that Nehemiah realizes that God has a burden for his people, and that burden becomes his. It's the same for us, right? God has a burden for his people and for his church. Has it become your burden? 
2 Corinthians 5.20 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God was making his appeal through you. Notice what it says. We are ambassadors. It doesn't say pastors are ambassadors. It doesn't say the church staff, they're ambassadors. It doesn't say deacons and elders, surely they're ambassadors. Notice it doesn't say that really ministry-minded Christians are ambassadors or those that are really studied and know a lot about the Bible, they're the ambassadors. It doesn't say those that are natural-born leaders, they're ambassadors. And it also doesn't say those that have time are ambassadors. It says we, meaning you, are an ambassador for Christ. You are representing someone else. And then it says, as though God was making his appeal through you, which is to say, as though God was carrying out his vision through you. Think about that statement. You are an ambassador for Christ as though God was carrying out his vision through you. It's beautiful. The question is, in order for God to carry out his vision through us, we have to understand what God is burdened for. And it has to become ours. So are you burdened for the brokenness of the world like God is? The brokenness of our city like God is? The brokenness in our church like God is? Because burdens give way to a vision and God is calling us to make his vision through us because we are his ambassadors. And I want to tell you uh, the really good news. Here's the good news. God is not asking you to sacrifice all of the personal visions that you have in your life. He's not asking you to sacrifice your professional vision, your, the vision that you have for your family, your own personal vision, your social vision. He's not asking you to sacrifice those things. He's actually asking you to use them, as in the case of Nehemiah. God has put Nehemiah in a very interesting position where he's able to use his influence and his profession, and his talents, and his resources, and his opportunities to carry out the vision that God has for his people. And he's asking us in the same way, are are you willing to use what God has given you for the church, and for the city, and for the things that God has burden for? Has it become your burden so that it can give way to a vision where you can actually ask God, God, how am I supposed to use my time and my talent and my treasure and my profession and my opportunities for maybe even someone that doesn't have any real life effect on me? Because it's something that burdens you and it burdens me because I belong to you and to your family and to your people. And you see that in the life of Nehemiah as he sets off and he goes from Babylon to Jerusalem and he's able to pass through all the hostile regions because he has the letters because he was preparing and he was patient. And then he gets to the city and it says that he goes and explores for a few days with a few men and nobody knows what's happening because he he wants to see it for himself. He wants to see and kind of process the, the, the vulnerable the vulnerable nature of the city and the weakness of the city so he knows what's going on. And then I love what happens as he's processed all of this and as this burden has really finally given birth to a vision that he's carrying out, he knows he's supposed to be involved in the work. Here's what he says in verse 17. He says, I said to them, you see the trouble, notice the language, we are in. 
how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. You see, Nehemiah knows he has a very important role to play. He knows he has a very important job in this work that God has called him to, but he's not self-important. His language is, is revealing that he knows that this is a communal project, that this is together, God's people all together. He says that this, the trouble that we are in, come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, that this is a communal work and there's going to be a communal reward. And here's how, here's how the people respond. It says, they say, let us rise up and build. Let's do it together. It says, and then they strengthen their hands for the good work. And so the question, as we're processing together as a church and as a family is, will you rise up and help us make our house a home? Will you help us build together for the sake of the gospel? Because God is burdened for this church. He's burdened for our city. And he has a vision to make his appeal through us, to carry out his vision through us, not individually, but together. Yes, maybe individually as you go out in your profession, in your neighborhood, in your condo. But he's calling us together to walk arm in arm as one. It's our communal work. And here's the communal reward. The reward for us is that God will be honored and people will come to find a home in Christ. And that should be enough. You see, this is an exciting burden. And sometimes you don't put excitement and burden together, but it is exciting because it's an exciting vision that God has called us to. We have been privileged to be ambassadors for Christ. And God is saying that he wants to carry out his vision for his people in his city through you. In his church. But here's the thing you have to remember is that as we do this together, there's going to be adversity. Just as there was for Nehemiah. It says that these weird guys, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, what a name. Don't name your child that. They jeered and despised the people of God for their work. That's going to happen to you, right? People are going to look at you like, why would you go to church and spend time going to church? Why would you use your time and your talents for something that doesn't necessarily personally affect you? And certainly, why would you ever give your money away? I mean, you worked hard. Why would you ever do that? That makes no sense. Why would you have a burden and a vision for someone that doesn't actually affect your life that you don't even really know? People will jeer and they will despise. And I love how Nehemiah responds in verse 20 to the people that did the same to him. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Love that, where he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. You may think it's ridiculous that we're building these walls. You may think there's no way that this is going to happen. We're talking about rising up and building together. And you're looking around and you think, there's no way. But I'm going to tell you something. God's going to make us prosper. You see, he, he, his answer is that it's not up to them. 
He says, it's not up to our ability and our goodness and our righteousness and all the talents that we have. Yes, we're going to use those things, but ultimately God is the one that's going to make us prosper. This is God's work. It's his burden and it's his vision. He's making his appeal through us. And so he's going to make us prosper. And it's true of not only the life of Nehemiah, but for us, God has called us to come together and to rise up and build. He's given us a work. He's given us a vision, a burden. And ultimately, God's going to make us prosper. It's not up to our ability and our talents and our righteousness and our goodness. And it's not only true of the work that God has called us to, but it's also true of the work that God did for us. You see, we are here and we are gathered not because we were really spiritual and we, we mustered up enough faith one day to accept God or we're righteous, or we're, we're really good people, where, you know, at least most of us in this room, we're 51% good, right? No, we're not good. We are flawed. We are rebellious. And yet, when you come to find Christ, you realize that he's done it all for you. He has lived the life that you couldn't. He's died the death that you deserve because of your sin, and he's risen from the dead to prove his victory over sin and death. And then he's offered you grace, which is unmerited favor. He's offered it to you, even though you did nothing to deserve it. And that's why we're gathered here, because we believe that God has given us grace through Jesus Christ, that we were broken down walls and we did not rebuild ourselves. We were broken down and Christ came and rebuilt us. He made us prosper. He makes his work prosper through his church and he made us prosper through his effort and his ability through what he did on the cross. And as we realize that as broken down walls that Christ has built us up, one of the things that's important for us to realize is that there are many other bricks around us. That it's not just our wall. We're not the only people in the wall. Every single one of us in here that in faith, we are part of the wall that Christ has built up. And he has called us together to rise up and to build. And yes, we're going to face adversity and people will jeer and people won't understand. And and you may even doubt and say, but God will make us prosper. And here's the beautiful thing about the vision that God has given. Nehemiah responds in this passage and he says, and you, Sambalat and Tobiah and, and Geshem, you have no right and no portion and no claim in this work. But see, for us, the work that God has called us to as a church is actually so that the people that jeer and ridicule and think it's ridiculous, they would come to find a right and a claim in Jesus Christ through faith. That we would be ambassadors that that would become the case. And so the question stands, will you come together with God's people and God's family in this church and rise up and help us build by making our house a home? But you need to be patient. You need to pray and pray and pray some more. And you need to prepare. You need to ask God, God, how are you asking me to be involved in this work? Because I recognize that you have a burden. And that burden is to be mine. And you have a vision that you want to make your appeal through me together with your people. So God, show me how you want me to rise up and build with your family through Crossbridge Brickle. I pray that you'll process that. And all the while knowing the only reason that that is given to you is because Christ has prospered for you. He has built you up as a broken wall. And he's called you now to build other broken walls that you see. 
Let's pray.